0: This is Sarah Phoenix, and we're listening to The Mood. And we're live. Okay. Hello, and welcome to The Mood. Today, I'm here with Barbara Sadler, an environmental health expert, a professor at the University of San Francisco, and a founder of the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments. So we have a lot of questions today touching on the current agriculture industry, um, climate change, and a lot of further in-depth about pesticides and how we're harmed locally so let's get started what is environmental health
1: environmental health is a sort of subplot of public health so in public health we look at all the different ways and things that happen that can impact on human health and um, and environmental health is specifically looking at those things that are exposures that might be biological exposures or radiological or chemical exposures and how they are impacting um, mostly uh, population-based health as opposed to individuals. So really looking at how they can affect a whole community or a whole class of people.
0: Okay, so what are some negative public health implications of climate
1: change? So, I think I th- want to start out by talking about what climate change is, because um, sometimes people uh, go right to what climate change causes and don't pay attention to what climate what's really causing climate change. Yeah, so we think, okay, climate change causes floods and fires and extreme weather. Well, I'll talk about the health effects it it creates also. But um, I think it's really important that every citizen be able to kind of describe what climate change is. You know, what's happening on Earth right now that is making the climate change. So I'm going to just spend a couple of minutes on that. Okay. And um, using some things that everybody, I think, can relate to. Um, So the Earth has been warmed by the sun for a very long time. And a lot of the sun's rays are reflected back out and past the atmosphere and out into the ethers. And that combination of the sun's rays warming the Earth and then some of that heat reflected back out, that combination has kept us at this temperature that has allowed life to flourish on Earth. But what has happened is that over, especially this last century, we've been creating more and more of gases that we are calling greenhouse gases because what they do is they blanket the atmosphere. So the sun's rays still come in and warm the Earth, but that reflected um, warmth that would ordinarily go out and completely go away now is getting captured. It's like we're wrapped in a blanket. So what we used to call it is greenhouse gases because it's creating this greenhouse effect. And so I wanna just ask you, have you ever left your car in the parking lot? You're from Sacramento. Yeah. And with the windows up on a sunny day, right? And you get back in the car and what? It's hot. It's really hot. That's a greenhouse effect, essentially. So the sun's rays are pouring into your car, but they can't escape. And so what's happening on Earth is that uh, this warmth is warming the earth, and we can't escape that. Then it happened.
0: The wind built up in fury. The flames speeded along their fiery path, forward and upward. Smoke masked the
1: face of the warm sun. This was no longer a
0: simple little fire. This was the beginning of a flaming giant. So what are these greenhouse gases, and how are
1: they man-made? So not all are man-made. So for instance, these huge fires that we've been having, those create some greenhouse gases. But the majority of greenhouse gases are being created by the way we produce energy, not just in the U.S., but all over the globe, the way that we're producing our food, and much more of animal-based diets create a lot more greenhouse gases. It's also the way we do transportation, this everybody driving their own car rather than having walkable communities and public transportation and bike lanes and those kinds of things. So the top three are how we do energy, how we do transportation, and how we do agriculture. And all three of those whole systems right now need to be revamped in order for us to decrease the greenhouse gases that are being created. Okay,
0: so are you saying that we need more
1: sustainable structures, essentially? And systems. So clearly we need to be moving more towards renewable energy and away from fossil fuel dependent energy. But when you think about fossil fuel dependency, it's not just the gasoline in our cars, it's also how we're heating our houses, it's also the products. So right here on our table, we've got plastic. Water Um, bottles. Yes, (laughs) I was a little sad Uh. to see that in the room, but plastic water bottles. And plastic is a derivative of fossil fuels. So we really need to be thinking uh, about the products that we use, the products that we buy that are plastics and other things that may be sort of a derivative of fossil fuels. Um, And then then in terms of transportation, really looking at how we do land development. So not doing these huge sprawly suburbs anymore. Let's stop that nonsense and Mm -hmm. let's build hubs around transportation hubs and around where work is i don't know about you but most my daughter who's over at ucsf she says that a a little bit of everybody's conversation is about their commute yeah definitely
0: especially here too yeah it's miserable right (laughs) because
1: we've done this so wrong yeah and so
0: many are also commuting from oakland so it just it there's so much time
1: involved. Yeah, time wasted. And yeah. now if you want to own a home, you've got to go way out there. Oh, definitely. Right? And now you just add another half an hour or an hour to your commute. It's, yeah. So we're not thinking this through very well. Yeah. And we're making everybody crazy on top of
0: it. <laughs> yeah. And, and just really hurting their, their banks.
1: <laughs> right. Definitely. And the environment.
0: Yeah. So how do our current industrial agriculture practices fuel this climate change? I know you t- touched on a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of things about it. Right now in the United States, the average mileage of um, where food is produced on a farm to when it gets to a plate is 1500 miles. So that's wow. a lot of diesel fuel in a truck. Mostly it's trucks. And it's, it's an inefficient way to do things. Mm-hmm. Now, there are places in the country, like North Dakota, where they can't grow, their growing season is very small, so they're gonna have to truck more things in. But in many parts of the country, cer- certainly the southern half of the country, we have long growing seasons. So we should be growing things locally and, and making sure we're buying foods that are grown locally and in season um, because right now we've been so spoiled. When I was a kid, you bought fruits that were in season. When they weren't in season, they weren't in the markets. Yeah. And now
0: it's also crazy seeing the fruits at the the supermarket that are like like the strawberries that are just like three times strawberries. Mm. Like mm-hmm. what it looked like when I was little is so different now.
1: That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, there's been a lot of hybridization of our fruits and vegetables. For yeah. sure, Which is not a bad thing. So the other thing, the really big thing, and there was a great United Nations report a few years ago looking at meat production, and Mm -hmm. it used to be in the global south, the population in the global south didn't eat meat very much, Um, but now they're adopting western diets, and particularly the diets of western industrialized countries, which is more meat. And so for instance, in places like South America, where they've got these wonderful, beautiful rainforests. And those are really good at capturing the greenhouse gases, the carbon, and and pulling it down into the ground. They're they're clear cutting them so that they can have places for beef cattle to graze. So they're doing like the triple whammy. First, they're taking down the trees, which are really important. Mm -hmm. Second, they're raising animals that produce a lot of methane, just naturally produce a lot of methane. And then they're having to transport this meat long distances to get to the marketplace. So it's like multiple contributors to climate change. So moving more towards plant-based diets, and I'm not saying everybody needs to be vegetarian or vegan, I'm really not, but, um, but looking at sort of a lo- little bit lower scale on the, you know, on the food chain in terms of what you eat and eating local as much as possible. Okay, really good.
0: So, other than like the production of methane in like
1: the raising cattle, what are other greenhouse
0: gases that are really affecting the environment?
1: Well, when we do um, when we do this big monoculture kinds of uh, farming, like we do in the Central Valley, um, in not so much producing meat there, but in producing uh, our fruits and vegetables. We're using a lot of diesel-fueled um, vehicles in the farming itself, and we're also tilling the soil rather than no-till, which is sort of what we're really looking at right now as, as a better practice. And when you till that soil, you release carbon into the atmosphere. You also break the integrity of the soil, which um, healthy soil doesn't, would prefer not to be broken up regularly because it's got all kinds of great microbes and really things that are important to the soil.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So can you go further in depth about how pesticides harm us as well as antibiotic use on animals in these farms?
1: Sure, so those are two other things that we're doing in this industrial kind of agriculture. So the way that we're producing most of our meat animals, and that includes our poultry, is in something that are not even called farms anymore. We call them concentrated animal feed organizations, CAFOs.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. So
1: (laughs) Yeah, and so a CAFO might have a thousand hogs in in a, a bunch of houses with no access to outdoors and they'll be raised entirely indoor. They're doing the same thing with chickens, entirely indoor and with thousands of chickens just in one house. So once you start um, putting animals in close proximity there, um, the likeness of them getting sick is higher. Um, and there, there are two reasons for using the antibiotics, and one is because the likeliness of them getting sick is higher, but also what most people don't know is when you give an animal a low level of antibiotic, a non-therapeutic level, it actually shifts their metabolism and they increase their weight. So if you're a beef cattle farmer or rancher, you make your money by the pound, right? You sell your beef cattle by the pound. So if you've got something that's gonna increase your beef cow by 5%, you're gonna use that because it's gonna come back to you in your profits. So they're using these non-essential antibiotics because they increase growth. The problem is when you start introducing antibiotics into the ecosystem, the pathogens, the bugs, start to say, oh, well we need to adapt to that. So they start changing and then you wind up with antibiotic resistant organisms. And then that directly affects, affects us when we eat it. it? That can affect us when we eat it, but it also winds up then in the runoff and in the water. It winds up then um, in the way that we may eat it but also or otherwise exposed to it so for instance people don't often think through where their food comes from but chickens okay we raise them in these windowless houses and then mostly at night the chicken catchers go in these are people who are paid to catch the chickens and they go in because chickens rest at night and so they go in and literally catch the chickens take them out throw them in the truck and then they go to slaughter I mean, people don't think about how do they get from one place to another, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just, you go to the grocery store, you buy your chickens, you know, your breast meat or your thighs or whatever, and you eat it. So what a friend of mine who's an um, an environmental scientist, she wanted to know whether these chicken catchers that went into the houses at night, were they developing antimicrobial resistant organisms? That's so interesting. Right. So. What she got them to do was give, them, give her samples of their stool because they were developing the antimicrobial organisms in their gut. Now, and so when they had bowel movements, th- she was getting samples and she was putting them in Petri dishes and seeing what would be resistant to, to antibiotics and she was finding that they were beginning to grow antimicrobial or antibiotic resistant organisms. Now, these were healthy workers, but if they went home to a newborn whose immune system hadn't fully developed, or to somebody with HIV AIDS, or to somebody who is um, permanently on immunosuppressants because they have uh, an organ, like a liver transplant or any other kind of transplant, these folks have very, very low um immunity. So for them to be exposed to, then, through this healthy worker who comes home um, and has these antimicrobial-resistant exist- organisms you know, on their clothing or on their hands, they then have the potential to get very, very sick. You don't think about that. Mm-mm. So are the diseases
0: or antibodies forming into stronger, um kinds well what's
1: the microbes are (laughs) microbes so and and all microbes are not pathogenic pathogenic meaning they cause pathology or illness Mm -hmm. so it's really the pathogenic organisms that we're worried about the ones that then can cause infections in humans either they can infect a wound or maybe they infect your stomach or if they get into your bloodstream they can infect any number of your organs so when we use these non-essential antibiotics, meaning non-therapeutic antibiotics, in our agriculture, we're creating the conditions for antimicrobial and antibiotic-resistant organisms to grow.
0: Wow. Okay. So that how do, how are we gonna grow from that um, if it's if they're already getting worse?
1: Well, a lot of hospitals now are very concerned about. Um, antibiotic resistant organisms we're seeing that and of so I'm also a nurse and as a nurse think about this do you want to be working with a patient taking care of a patient who has an infection with an organism for which there is no treatment right mm-hmm. it's, it's a little scary So it's scary for all the people that work in the hospital, and addressing these antibiotic-resistant organisms and infections is is a big, important priority for hospitals around the country and around the world right now. So it all kind of goes back to, do we need to be using these unessential antibiotics in agriculture, and the answer is a resounding no. I mean, we've been raising beef cattle and chickens for many, many hundreds and thousands of years, right, without giving them antibiotics. Antibiotics were only invented in just the last century or so. So the other thing you asked about was pesticides. Yes. So there are a lot of different kinds of pesticides. The pesticide's a big umbrella for many different chemicals. So do you ever use antimicrobial soap, hand-washing soap? I I don't even pay attention
0: to the label, but probably. Yeah, so a lot of
1: people do. And in fact, I just came from the restroom over in the nursing school, and and what is in the little squirt bottle there is antimicrobial soap. And so antimicrobials are chemicals that were designed to kill something, right? Mm -hmm. They're to kill microbes. So pesticides are chemicals that were either designed to kill something or to stop its reproduction so chlorine is a pesticide it's registered with the epa because it kills microbes but also um, glyphosate or roundup is a chemical that's used um, if you go to home depot or lowe's you'll see
0: yeah i think i heard something about that as well
1: yeah so there's a lot going on with it right now Big big lawsuits. Yeah. Successful lawsuits by people who have wound up with cancer who used it. Yes. Yeah. Um, because they didn't the company that made it, Monsanto, didn't give enough information about the health risks and how to protect yourselves. So so insecticides are pesticides that kill insects. Herbicides are pesticides that kill plants. What do you think a um is. Oh my goodness. I'm not okay That's things. okay. No, that's okay. It kills lice. Pediculos- oh, I would not I know. That. It was a trick question, sorry. But but so there are different how about fungicide, what do you think? Fungi. Yeah, there you go, And a mold, exactly. Got it. Right. So there are lots of different kinds of pesticides and they're specific to kill or stop the reproduction. So it's no surprise that we, the EPA okayed the use of neonicotinoids, which are insecticides. And then we discovered, lo and behold, that they're injuring bees. Well, they're an insecticide. Yeah. They're poisonous to insects. So they're one of the insecticides, one of the pesticides that we're very concerned about because of the bee population. Glyphosate, which is a, a, an herbicide, is another one because we're concerned because it's a carcinogen, and we're using it in our fields all over the place. Now we're in Northern California, and what is a big crop up in Sonoma, Napa? Wine. Grape. Grapes. Yes. Right. Wine to grapes. Yes, exactly. And so there are only one percent of the of the grape vineyards that are up there that are organic. So 99% of them are conventional vineyards. I didn't know that. And they use glyphosate. Oh. So it's wow. used widely in Napa, Sonoma, Lake County where they're growing um, grapes for wine. Well, how safe is that to be so close to it? It's not so safe. And that's what these lawsuits are just proving. Um, when juries see what the, what the data is, um, the International Agency for Research on Cancer has said that glyphosate is a probable carcinogen, but we are putting it all over, all over. It's one of the largest categories of pesticides that's used globally.
0: Wow. And in relation to, like, the fires that happened recently, does that just kind of, like, double the harm with the carcinogens?
1: Well, it, in environmental health, what we recognize is that we're kind of awash in a soup of chemicals, right? Yeah, yeah. There are chemicals that are on our food, residues that are on our food, there are chemicals in our personal care products, right? Yeah. There are, and I would encourage your listeners to, um, to look at the safe cosmetics database, and that's whether they're male or female, because they can put in their shampoo or their deodorant if they're male, and look and see what kinds of chemicals are in your personal care products. You can look that up. Now if you really wanna know about the pesticide residues on your food, there's a wonderful website and also an app and it's called What's On My Food. What's On My Food? Right, Okay. and you go to What's On My Food and you look up what you ate last night. Maybe you had asparagus and maybe you had rice and it will tell you Based on the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, based on what pesticide residues they've found on these products, it will tell you the likelihood of what kinds of pesticide residues you probably ate last night. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God, that's right. So (laughs) it's not one thing or another thing. It's all the things. It's a mix, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, so
0: expanding off of that, how much does the federal government government do to ensure our safety as well as other laws and bills passed and are there any positive policies that are being advanced toward our public health
1: well our current administration is not public health forward yeah and in, in anything that they're doing and um, and certainly in environmental health it's um, it's been really disheartening what's been going on with the federal government. So for instance, the Environmental Protection Agency was told to take anything that said climate change off its website. This is horrifying. I saw that, that is horrifying. It is absolutely horrifying. And any of us who believe in science, and all of us, should be writing letters to this president that we believe in science and that it's really important for us to not politicize science that that we should be paying attention to it so that we can protect our people. And so they've reversed a bunch of uh, public health protective environmental health policies. And right now I'm afraid they're listening a lot more to the industry than they are to the public health and scientific community. And it's going to bite us in the buns at some point in terms of increasing health risks that we're gonna start seeing. And for so many, Uh, exposures, the health risks don't happen immediately. I mean, if you accidentally drink pesticides as a child, you know, or accidental poisoning, yeah, you have immediate results. But most of them accumulate over time. And for things like cancer, sometimes there's a latency period of 20 or 30 years. So a lot of the exposures that we're seeing now may increase your risk, for instance, um, for getting some of these chronic diseases or cancer. The other thing that the federal government started doing about 10 years ago, there's something called the National Health and Nutrition Exam Study. And they examined thousands of Americans um, for their health status. And one of the things they started adding to that about 10 years ago was doing biomonitoring. So testing people's urine and blood for the presence of bad chemicals that should never be in a human body. And what they're discovering, regrettably, is that in your body and in my body, we have plasticizers, solvents, pesticides, heavy metals, all these things that should never be there. Yeah. And for each of these chemicals, the reason they chose them was because there was peer-reviewed science that clearly showed that they created a health risk. So if we've got all of these toxic chemicals in our body, from my perspective, that's a failure in our policies, right?
0: Yes, yeah, and that's very scary.
1: Yes, it is. You don't want to take my classes. You stop <laughs> drinking, <laughs> I eating. I do <laughs> Slathering your body with stuff. It's just terrible. Yeah. But I think we need to be informed about this and- Definitely. And making healthy choices. And you don't have to go to Whole Paycheck or Whole Foods <laughs> to be healthier. There are lots of ways where you can make choices, um, and using some of these databases that will help you make the decisions that I've described. Um, and and the other thing is that, regrettably, we can't just shop our way out of this mess. We really do have to have sound policies.
0: Yeah, so are there any like regulations that have come up that have really
1: helped? Over the years, for sure. Okay. Yeah, over the years we have, um, We've changed um, and created Clean Air Act. We've got the Clean Water Act. We've got the Safe Drinking Water Act. so that. How uh, does that correlate with Flint, Michigan? Um. Yeah, so in Flint, Michigan, they made some changes in their sources of water, and they should have had public health concerns. There were some people that were asleep at the switch there, okay. and it was actually a pediatrician who was seeing lead-poisoned kids and was trying to figure out why, what was going on there. And she was very persistent and finally got you know, people to be paying attention. And then they started measuring children's lead levels all throughout Flint and were discovering horribly high lead levels, which were clearly going to indicate potential problems for these children in cognition, behavioral problems, sometimes kidney failure I mean all kinds of things and so eventually they did realize that they were taking the water from a water source that they never should have been taking it from and they began to you know fix that problem but the horse was already out of the barn for many of these children and there have been lawsuits and the EPA obviously the federal EPA has been in Flint Michigan and and the Centers for Disease Control and just lots of our federal agencies,
0: so th- I feel like that kind of serves as an a- example of how like not not how badly the federal government is really like watching over these problems and really yeah. like taking initiative to help them, um, right and so do you think it would help if we just made more like better
1: policies? Oh, I think having sound public health oriented policies that are based in science is absolutely the direction we need to go. Okay. But um, if your viewers want to read another horrifying book, Dark Money, okay. which is about how um, the Koch brothers and some of the major corporations have really been putting money into ideologically damaging um, programs, um, to protect their companies and to to um, deny climate change, deny the science. Um, so dark money is really about how that's been going on for decades now and they've really built momentum. So now it's not unusual at all to have the head of our federal agencies come directly out of industry. Yeah. And then go back into industry as well, soon I mean, as they're done. Like our
0: president is in industry, and mm-hmm. in, in most of the policymakers,
1: right? The, especially his uh, his appointees.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I, I think that does it for today.
1: I'm <laughs> <laughs> <Enough> scary knowledge <laughs> for <laughs> scary one knowledge.
0: podcast. <laughs> I know we can't go too long, but but wow, I feel very eye opened. Um, Wow, I'm going to read that book. (laughs) Thank you so much. Again, that was Barbara Sadler, and you just listened to The Mood.